0: It is my duty as well as my joy to come before you this morning. One of the things that a pastor is commanded to do from the word of God is to feed the flock as well as to protect and to be a watchful shepherd to help you guard against some of the rapacious wolves that are dressed up as pastors, as religious leaders in our day. And so this morning... We will once again look at the gospel of Matthew as we continue to study this particular gospel verse by verse. We are in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and this morning we will be looking specifically at verses 13 through 33, a very large portion of scripture, but we will cover it. It's not that difficult where it needs great, great description. Before we look at the text, though, may I say that it is a great benefit to systematically study the Word of God, to do so verse by verse, because it helps us understand the context of the material that God has given us. It helps us to grasp the force of what God would have us hear. We have learned over the many months as we've studied the Gospel of Matthew We've learned of the miraculous birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen his life of perfect obedience. We've seen his model for ministry. It's not to go wide with many, but to go deep with a few because multiplication is produced through concentration. We've seen how he has a bold proclamation of truth, obviously, being the son of God. And he cowers to no one. He speaks without compromise. He is not at all seeker sensitive, as you hear so often today. We've seen his power over sin, over Satan, over disease, over demons, over nature, and even over death. And we've witnessed the paltry few that end up truly following Christ. We've watched in amazement as he enters into Jerusalem, people thinking that he is the deliverer from Roman bondage, not understanding that he is the deliverer from sin. We've heard them cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And yet those very same people will just a few days later cry for his blood. And after Jesus entered into Jerusalem, we witnessed his irresistible power because the first thing he does is goes straight to the temple where he physically cleanses his father's house that had been turned into a place of sacrilege, a den of thieves, and with his commanding presence, he confronts the Jewish leaders confronts them over their wickedness as he manifests his hatred of sin and his passion for holiness. And in so doing, he denounced Israel's worship. He even denounced Israel as a nation. And then we've marveled at the unsuccessful attempts of the Jewish leaders, the spiritual elite of his day, as they tried to discredit the son of God to preserve their own power base And then finally, in the outer court of the temple, and this is where we find ourselves today, after he has humiliated his oppressors, the murderous religious elite, he gives us one last public sermon. And we've learned a bit of that sermon the last time I spoke with you a couple of weeks ago. We learned that. His topic was not what most people would think. And if you think about it, what would the Son of God speak on his last time in public? What do you suppose his topic would be? Well, it wasn't social and political reform. reform. It wasn't how to somehow boost your self-esteem. It wasn't to somehow discover a more successful life. He didn't speak on the virtue of tolerance of all kinds of other faiths, regardless of what they teach. In fact, dear friends, it wasn't even a sermon on evangelism, on salvation, on the resurrection. It wasn't even a sermon on the principles of kingdom living. But dear friends, there was one theme that dominated the heart of the Son of God that day. There was one theme passion that he spoke on and what he spoke on was a denunciation, a detailed denunciation of false shepherds, underscoring the seriousness of their influence. So beginning in Matthew 23 with that sermon, we learned a few weeks ago of five very obvious characteristics of false religious leaders. We learned that they are self-appointed, they are hypocrites, they are bereft of genuine compassion, they're egomaniacs, desperate to be noticed. They will twist the truth, they will claim special revelation, and they will bully their followers into submission. And now, beginning in verse 13, we see seven curses, seven pronouncements of judgment that God pronounces upon these religious charlatans who systematically attack the truth and beloved. May I say from the outset, before we look at the text this morning, that the great challenge of the church today is not to fight against abortion and to fight against homosexuality or other forms of wickedness that's in our culture. It's not to somehow moralize America. The great challenge of the church today is not to wage war against those who would remove prayer in schools or remove Christmas or any other vestige of Christianity from our culture. It's not even to somehow help us discover new and creative ways to attract people to a church or to Christianity. But dear friends, the great challenge of the church today is to unashamedly, And with great boldness, with great clarity, present precisely the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you will inevitably encounter false teachers who have twisted and distorted the glorious gospel. And it's for that reason that the Lord Jesus spoke to those people in that outer court of the temple that day on that very topic, denouncing false teachers and the wickedness that they perpetrate upon the world. Beloved, we're in a battle for the truth. We hear much today about terrorists and all of the dangerous things that they can do, and indeed they are dangerous. But dear friends, we have a far more formidable foe. And that foe is Satan, the father of lies, who has infiltrated the church through predators that stand in pulpits and teach in our Bible schools and teach in our seminaries. Men and women who are distorting the truth. They are, as Jesus said, wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, they dress up and pretend to be shepherds of the sheep. But inwardly, Jesus said, they are ravenous wolves. Jude warned us that they creep into the church unnoticed. They will be hidden reefs in your love feasts. He says they are like unreasoning animals. They will follow after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And Jude goes on to remind us to remember the words of Christ and the apostles. He said, in the last time, there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded Devoid of the spirit. Dear friends, men and women are dying in their sins. They are drowning in a sea of deception. This is no time for passivity. This is no time for us to somehow float through our comfortable Christian life here in Middle Tennessee and other parts of the world. And to somehow cower behind some perverted sense of love and tolerance that is afraid to confront and expose error and to call a spade a spade when it comes to a false teacher. Beloved, the ship is sinking and souls are perishing. We need to forget about our own needs and our own commitment to wealth and prosperity and comfort and throw someone a lifeline, a lifeline of the truth. We need to get serious about our faith. It's time to call people to repentance. To tell people about the holiness of God that separates them from their sinfulness. And to help them see that that infinite chasm can only be bridged through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We need to contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude said. And again, when you do, you will inevitably go to battle against false teachers that now dominate the so called evangelical landscape. Dear friends, we are not only to stand for truth, but we are to attack error and to do so aggressively. And this is precisely what we see in Jesus' last sermon a scathing denunciation of false teachers, of religious heretics who pose the greatest threat to true Christianity. By the way, before we look at the text, once again, these false shepherds have been around for centuries. It's an age-old problem. You will recall that God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. and Jeremiah 6 and verse 13, he exposes the heart of the people and their religious leaders. And here's what God said. For from the least of them even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. In other words, they were ear-tickling prophets and preachers, telling people what they want to hear, rather than, thus saith the Lord. And Jeremiah goes on in Jeremiah 23 and verse 16. Where the Lord of hosts himself warns the people saying, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And in verse 36, he goes on to say they have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Well, unfortunately, the scribes and the Pharisees had enormous influence over the people and they had perverted the words of the living God. And now God stands before them as they stood now cowering with the rest of the multitudes, having been humiliated by the Lord as he has parried every one of their blows against him. Now they stand there in their silly robes and their funny little hats and their big phylacteries, and all of the gaudy things that would somehow draw attention to their self-righteous spirituality. And the Lord now has had enough of it. And in his last sermon, he confronts them head on. Now, mind you, here Jesus is not only revealing his hatred for such hypocrisy, such wickedness, but also he's giving his disciples who are standing there with him, an example of how you deal with false teachers. And again, the way you deal with them is you confront them head on. By the way, who are the modern counterparts of false teachers today of the, the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, of certainly any kind of ear tickling pastor that stands in a pulpit, liberal theologians that deny the authority or the inspiration of scripture, those that Are involved in denominations, certainly not all, but some denominations and Bible schools and seminaries, people that trifle with the truth and water down the gospel and make it supposedly less offensive. So more people will somehow buy into their distorted form of Christianity. Certainly those that are mystics, those that have jettisoned Bible doctrine, those people who would Rather than looking at the word of God, just come up with truth kind of intuitively because they feel that God has somehow spoken to them in some special way. I believe that the ecumenical movement is a very, very dangerous place where you will find many false teachers, those who have abandoned sound doctrine and sacrificed it on the altar of tolerance. You'll see it in Christian publishing You'll see it in the music industry that I've been a part of so much and other forms of Christian media where the sole criteria of what they will produce is basically will it sell, not is it truth? And may I remind you that we need to use the litmus test that Jesus gave in Matthew 7. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. The narrow gate is the one that leads to life, but he tells us that very few are going to find it. But there is also a wide gate, a broad way that leads to destruction. And he says, and many are those who enter by it. Dear friends, may I say again that if it's a megachurch, if it's a bestseller, it's probably a counterfeit. Because there is a narrow way and there is a broad way. Had Jesus preached the wide gate message of the purpose-driven life, he would have received the same wide-scale acceptance, unprecedented acceptance. But he didn't preach that. In fact, the message of the cross has always and will always be unpopular. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Literally, it's moronic. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because, dear friends, the true gospel is the gospel of self-denial, the gospel of repentance, where people cry out for mercy that is undeserved because they're overwhelmed with the wretchedness of their own hearts. The false gospel is the gospel of self-fulfillment. Obviously, that's the one that sells not the gospel of self-denial. So there are seven woes here, seven reasons for the judgment that God pronounced upon these religious charlatans. And friends, I must say that this is one of the most alarming passages in all of Scripture. Now we come to the text and we see the first curse being levied against them. And I would call it the curse for their spiritual sabotage. Notice verse 13 of Matthew 23, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Well, so much for the seeker sensitive approach. You see, these pretenders. We're shutting off the kingdom of heaven from men. How would they do that? Well, simply by denouncing the gospel of grace. They would offer instead their ridiculous system of works righteousness. People would see the miracles. They would hear the preaching of Jesus and the disciples. And right as they would come up to the glorious principles of grace, the leaders would come in and say, no, 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 no. Don't you understand? This man is doing this by the power of Beelzebul. This man is a phony. This man is presenting something that's not true. You must come back and obey the rituals and the ceremonies. And although they heard the truth from Jesus and they saw the truth validated by his miracles, they still rejected it. You will recall even after Pentecost in Acts 4, Peter and John, remember, they they healed the lame man. And these religious saboteurs came along and in verse 16, we read what happens. They said, what shall we say? What shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem? And we cannot deny it, but in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. Dear friends, that is spiritual sabotage. Paul lamented over the wicked interference of the Jewish leaders in the lives of those in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read what they were doing. And he says to them, they are the ones that both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. You see, friends, because of their sinister influence, they caused many to apostasize, which means to fall away. Now, they're not falling away from salvation. The Bible doesn't speak of that. There is no place in the Bible where we read that someone can be unjustified. But what they were falling away from was from the glorious principles of saving grace. In fact, we read of this in Galatians 5 and other passages. Paul described those who choose to remain enslaved by the law. In verse 4, he says, you have been severed or literally estranged from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You see, anyone who sabotages another man's salvation by somehow offering them a different gospel, there's a curse, according to Galatians 1.8. And that's precisely what was going on here. By the way, think of all the ways that this happens. And, and I'm talking here beyond the cults, which are very obvious. Think of how people will present Jesus not as the savior from sin, but rather as some mystical genie that you can get to know and learn how to rub in a certain way so that he will give you all kinds of personal miracles. That's spiritual sabotage, dear friends. Those that would present Jesus plus works. Those that would present Jesus as merely a metaphor of selfless love. Not a real person, much less the incarnate Christ. Those that would present Jesus as merely one out of many options that will get you to heaven. And the list goes on. Dear friends, spiritual saboteurs rob God of his glory And they subject themselves to his wrath. Well, secondly, we see that he cursed them for their religious contamination. And here we see this in verse 15. By the way, I'm skipping verse 14. It is bracketed in the New American Standard Bible and maybe in your text as well. And the reason we'll skip it is because it's not included in the best early manuscripts of Matthew. It was probably added by some well-intentioned copyist who extrapolated the information from Mark 12, 40 and Luke 20, verse 47. So we look at verse 15 as the second curse against the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You see, friends, Deception is a metastasizing corruption. It's something worse than the AIDS epidemic because it spreads. And one person learns error and they teach it to their children or their family or their church. And before you know it, the whole world is buying into some deception. This is religious contamination. You see, there was a great effort even in Jesus' day to convert Gentiles from paganism to Judaism. And when they would do that, they would have two kinds of proselytes. They would have one proselyte that was called the proselyte of the gate. Now, this would be just a nominal Jew. This would be a Gentile that becomes kind of a nominal Jew. Like most Christians, they claim to worship the true God, but with only minimal commitment. But then there was a second type, and this was called a proselyte of righteousness. Now, friends, this is one that became a full-fledged, card-carrying, torah toten, legalistic, hair-splitting, fanatic, just like the other Pharisees. These were the type of people that were determined to earn their way into heaven, and they wanted everybody to know it. The long tassels, the big phylacteries, and on and on it goes. And like many new converts, their fanatical zeal exceeded their converters. So what Jesus was saying to these false teachers Because of your perverted works righteousness system, your converts are twice as much a son of hell as you are. You see, a son represents the characteristics of their father, even a spiritual father. And their spiritual father was Satan, the father of lies. And so these proselytes now would manifest all the marks of a hellion. And child of God, we need to stop for a moment. Those of you who truly know the Savior. We need to be thankful for the one that God used to share the gospel with you. And it was probably more than just one person. And in, in every case, in fact, it's more than one person. But many times there's one particular person that shared Christ with you, because you must understand that that particular soldier of the cross persevered against untold assailants to somehow get to you. To present to you the truth by God's grace. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Isaiah tells us. We need to rejoice even in this Thanksgiving season. For parents that were faithful. For grandparents that were faithful. For friends that were faithful. And for all of those that prayed. All of those who heard all of the deceptions And persevered even in spite of all of them and came to you and said, no, 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 no. Here's what God said. Here's what the truth is. Now, may I add as a footnote, whenever you encounter some poor deceiver, someone that's blinded by the deceptions of some cult or whatever, be very, very careful. Don't allow them to contaminate you with the toxic waste of their deceptions. Never debate with them. That's casting pearls before swine. Instead, you need to to strongly and forthrightly denounce their teachings and then kindly present the gospel to them. In fact, Jude 23 tells us that we are to try to snatch them out of the fire, as it were. And on some, he says, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And so you may be well-intentioned, but treat them with utmost caution. Many of them know error far better than, you know, truth. Be very, very careful lest their demonic lies and their debauched life pollute you like some radioactive waste. So he curses them for their spiritual sabotage, their religious contamination of other converts. And then thirdly, for their what I would call moral chicanery. Look at verse 16. Here's what he says. Woe to you, blind guides who say. Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see, folks, these false religious teachers were, as we would say, too ignorant to even know they were ignorant. They were blind guides. They were unable to see the truth. Now, let me give you the context here. You see, the Jews of that day had developed a very sophisticated system of swearing oaths supposedly designed to make their word their bond to 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 somehow anchor their promises. And if you didn't do what you said you were going to do, you would be subject to uh, the penalties of the Jewish law. But here, Jesus exposes this ludicrous double standard that they had. The way they had done it is this. They said, well, now, if you swear by the temple, then that's not considered binding. In other words, if you come to the, to, the, uh, to the synagogue and you say, you know what, I'm going to donate a bunch of land here. And I swear I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it by the temple. That's kind of like doing it in our culture with both fingers crossed, holding it behind your back. It's kind of like, you know, that's not really binding. And I know if later on I change my mind, I can say, well, you know what? I just swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. You see, the gold of the temple was binding. I mean, can you imagine anything any more preposterous? So, first of all, you need to understand that Jesus condemns swearing on vows to begin with. Remember in Matthew five thirty seven he says, Make your statement be yes, yes or no no, and anything beyond these is of evil. So these people were, were were looking for some kind of a spiritual loophole to justify their deception, their chicanery. But the Lord wants us to say what we mean and mean what we say, and let our word be our bond, anchored in our godly character. But not so for the false teachers. Not so for them. They had these, shall we say, logical gymnastics that they would play that would give them some sanctimonious justification for deceiving someone and then getting out of what they said. Worse yet, if you'll notice, the lesser carried more weight than the greater. I mean, think of this. The gold was somehow made more sacred than the holy sanctuary and the altar upon which it was given. Ridiculous. Absurd. But friends, this will always be the mark of an apostate. Well, he goes on to curse them in verses 23 through 24 for what I would call their twisted priorities. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You see, here he condemns their hollow ritualism. Let me give you the context. Tithing was a requirement of taxation under the old covenant. By the way, it has no place in the new covenant. Just as a footnote, while giving 10% may be a good benchmark, It is never mentioned in the New Testament as being binding upon the church, nor is it ever recommended as the standard for giving. In fact, for many people, it is not enough. And for some, it may be too much. In fact, the Mosaic tithe is mentioned only six times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospels pertaining to its abuse by the scribes and the Pharisees and then three times in Hebrews in reference to its ancient use in Israel. Now, while the Israelites were required to pay approximately 23% of their yearly income to fund the theocracy that they lived in, including a tithe on various farm crops, the legalistic scribes and Pharisees overstretched the law to include even the smallest of herbs, the little garden plants that you would have in your windowsill, so to speak. And, of course, there's only one reason why you would do this. Not to honor God, but to flaunt your spirituality. And this makes God sick. This is a stench into his nostrils. And again, this will always characterize a counterfeit religious system. They will be obsessed with minutia. They will be preoccupied with non-essentials. You see, religious externalism will exalt itself while the matters of the heart will go unheeded. People will be meticulous in the insignificant and yet indifferent to the weightier matters, the weightier provisions of the law. You know, it's easy to spot this and in, in various cults and pagan religions. For example, you can see it in fundamentalist Islam, people that will be obsessed with rules on clothing and what to eat, what not to eat, uh, fastings, uh, uh, when to pray, how to pray, where to look when you pray. But it's OK to rape and torture and blow people up and to behead people. But, you know, dear friends, we also need to guard against that ourselves, even in our Evangelical circles, you know, you can be obsessed, for example, with a particular Bible translation, and yet your family and your marriage be a disaster. You can be meticulous in paying your tithe, whatever you deem that to be, and yet be pathetic when it comes to controlling your anger. You can be precise in your doctrine. And abusive to your wife. You can brag about never working on Sunday and yet be merciless and unforgiving. You can be consumed with all kinds of personal preferences that offer the appearance of godliness and yet have no secret devotion to God. So we all need to guard against those types of things. Well, God was not impressed with their self-righteous tithing. He wanted them to just be merciful And to be just and to be faithful to him. But instead, they were greedy, they were brutal, they were crooked, they were unforgiving. Well, this fourth curse was similar to the fifth that we see in verses 25 and 26. He cursed them for their robbery and self indulgence. Notice what he says Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Don't you imagine you could have heard a pin drop? The multitude standing around in the outer court of the temple and the Pharisees, I'm sure, beat red in the face with absolute rage against the Lord Jesus, and yet feeling powerless to say anything, to do anything, and certainly afraid of the multitudes. Well, here again, he exposes their hypocrisy. You see, outwardly, they were like a cup or a platter, Jesus is saying, that's clean on the outside. And indeed, they would fastidiously observe all of the rituals, but the spiritual food that they served in their beautiful, ceremonially clean China, shall we say, was rancid. It was absolutely putrid with the stench of deception and hypocrisy. That's why Jesus said that you are, that you are full of robbery. By the way, the, tech, the, uh, the, the, the term in the original language denotes ill-gotten gain, something that is derived from from violence, from, from pillaging, from plundering. And they were like all false teachers. They were extortionists. By the way, I must add, I believe that the vast majority of religious leaders today are in it for the money. I see pastors flocking to the megachurch gurus to somehow learn their secrets. I received this stuff in the email and in the mail Seriously, probably four or five a week wanting me to come learn how to do something to attract a crowd to the church. Because after all, preaching the truth doesn't pay. People don't want to hear that. If you preach the truth, you know what? You'll probably end up like Jesus. Foxes have holes. Son of man had no place to lay his head. People today... In, pulpits in many places, certainly not all. And we praise God for those that are faithful to the truth. But so many have become absolutely brilliant in fleecing people's wallets, offering people promises of personal miracles, how to be more successful in your living, how to have greater self-esteem, how to be more happy in your life, anything but how to be saved, how to have forgiveness from sin, Because there is a holy God and you're going to have to answer to him. And you better get ready. You better be reconciled to him. What does it it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? My blood boils when I hear people say, as I heard the other day on television, plant your seed faith money by giving to this ministry and watch God multiply your gift. People that are full of Robbery. And Jesus even adds self-indulgence, akrasia in the original language. It's a a term that denotes the utter absence of self-control. It it has the idea of a rabid commitment to self-indulgence. You recall Jesus said in, in Mark 12, 40, that these people devour widows' houses. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that they are lovers of money, that they hold to a form of godliness, that they will enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I'll never forget having a conversation once with a very wealthy fundraiser who was retained by several very well-known televangelists. You would know them if I mentioned their names. And as he was talking about what he did, I shook my head and I, 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 I was kind. And his response was kind, but I was very forthright. I remember I said to him, how can you in good conscience help these con artists fleece innocent and naive people? not knowing what his answer would be and fearing that he would probably explode at me. Instead, he just kind of laughed from his belly and he said, ha, well, they're going to give it somewhere. And he said, they're going to give it at a casino or they're going to give it to the lottery because people are trying to buy a dream, he said. Might as well be us. That was his attitude. Absolutely no conscience And he went on to tell me that his target group was disillusioned, lonely women between the ages of 40 and 50, women that feed on soap operas and romance novels, Oprah Winfrey fans and women that are predominantly ruled by emotions rather than by reason. And he had a very, very sophisticated system of knowing how to target these people Now, mind you, that was about 15 years ago when I talked with this man, about 12 or 15 years ago. And he's still at it. And they're still at it. So Jesus cursed them for their spiritual sabotage, their religious contamination, their moral chicanery, their twisted priorities, their robbery and self-indulgence. And then sixthly, for their secret, secret wickedness. Verses 27 and 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Any of you who have been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem know that you can stand on the Mount and you can look up and you can see the Mount of Olives and it is covered with stone tombs of the Jews that are white. It kind of glistens in the sun. And it's interesting that even in Jesus' day they would whitewash their houses, they would whitewash their fences, their their gates, but especially they would whitewash the tombs. And particularly... Around the time of Passover because they wanted to make sure that when the pilgrims came to worship at Passover, they didn't touch a tomb because if you touched a tomb, you would be unclean for seven days. And so they would whitewash the tombs and many times they would even paint um, kind of a skeleton or bones on the side of the little boxes that were on the and and around on the hills and so. This was a perfect picture for Jesus to use because he could just turn and see thousands of those tombs. By the way, it costs $100,000 today to be buried on the Mount of Olives. And the Jews pay that to be buried there because they believe that someday when Messiah comes, he said that that's where he's going to land and they want to be first to be there. Isn't it sad that they don't understand the truth? But Jesus could point to those whitewashed tombs. And use that as a picture of religious externalism. People that look great on the outside, but on the inside they reek with the stench of secret wickedness. Friends, might I warn each of you. Don't mock God. Don't play church. I pray that all of you will understand that he despises hypocrisy. And you will place yourself in the pathway of divine chastening just like that if you try to put on some kind of a spiritual veneer. Well, then finally, there's a crescendo to Jesus' pronouncement upon them. The seventh curse was for their murderous charade. Notice in verses 29 through 33, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the self-righteous. Let me stop there. What the scribes and the Pharisees would do is, and they had done this for hundreds of years up to Jesus' time, they would build tombs and 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 enhance mausoleums over the burial sites of the prophets, and um, many of which had been murdered by their forefathers, and that would cause them to say in verse thirty, "If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets." But, dear friends, what an inconceivable mockery. What what a murderous charade. The audacity to somehow try to distance yourself from the guilt of your forefathers while at the same time you are scheming to kill the greatest prophet that has ever lived, none other than the Messiah, the Son of God. What a sickening thing. Is there any reason, any, any other Any other reason that could be worse for the Lord Jesus to be righteously indignant at such blasphemy. For this reason, Jesus went on to say, consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Well, my friends, this is. This is the ultimate end of charlatans. What a terrible thought. What a tragic thought. Those that fill up the measure of their guilt. And we want to remember that even though there are many charlatans out there today, we need to pray that somehow God would break through their cold and stony hearts. I believe that many of them know exactly what they're doing. But there's probably many more that are unwitting, that have just bought into a lie and they don't really realize it. Well, as we close this morning, may I just say beyond the marks that we've seen of false teachers and false systems that we've seen this morning, may may I just caution you because I know people will write me and I get lots of emails from all over. And people will, will ask me about different things, different books, different people, different teachings, whatever. But if I could give you some general things as we close this morning. One of the things that is is very typical, a thread of commonality with false teachers today, is they tend to focus on the temporal, not on the eternal. Does that make sense to you? It's it's, kind of all about now. And and that's the ear-tickling stuff. Boy, we want to know, you know, how can we get something for ourselves now? Their messages will typically be man-centered, not God-centered. You look at, for example, uh, the the Joel Osteen so-called ministry. Um, the, the number one best-selling book now that's coming out along with The Purpose Driven Life is his book. It's called Your Best Life Now. You see, it's that type of stuff that you will see. It will, it will always be messages that, and, and writings and teachings that the centers on man and his needs, not God and his glory. In fact, in the Joel Osteen Church, the motto is Discover the champion in you. And, of course, you have the purpose-driven life, the the, the the same type of themes. You just want to be very careful with those things. And also, you will typically see that salvation is very wide. You can kind of believe anything that you want. There's no denying of self, no, not hardly any talk about, about the need for repentance and so on. It'll be a real easy believism type of thing. And people typically will read the books and go to those church services and they will never leave the services convicted of sin. They, they will no, never come out of there somehow overwhelmed by some great truth of Scripture that, that they've never before seen or never never before considered. They won't come out awestruck with the character of God. They won't be moved to some secret devotion or secret devotion um, to, to God, the lover of their souls. They won't see those types of things. They typically will not be moved to somehow, as Paul said, to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. You just won't see that type of thing. Instead, they will have kind of an emotional pick-me-up that will typically dissipate with the hot air that bore it. And I close with a quote from John MacArthur on this whole issue of false teaching, false teachers Here's what he has to say, quote, regardless of the appealing, benign and promising front that a false system of religion or philosophy may have, its ultimate accomplishment is to shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. Quoting there from Matthew 23, on our Lord's words, he goes on to say it may feed their bodies, stimulate their minds and calm their emotions, but it will inevitably damn their souls. It may raise their moral standards, increase their worldly success, overcome practical problems and improve their outward relationships with other people. But it will not remove their sin or improve their relationship to God. He closes by saying it may promise heaven, but it can only deliver hell. May God give us all discernment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us in your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you will protect all of us, all of us who know and love you and know and love the truth. Protect us from the cunning schemes of the devil. Lord, they are so ingenious. May we be diligent in wearing the whole armor of God. May we know the truth so well that we can spot a counterfeit. And Lord, finally, I would just pray this morning that you will be merciful to those who continue to stubbornly rebel against the truth. Lord, how I pray that you will break their hearts over their sin. Lord, may today be the day that they they come running to the foot of the cross. May today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth because they saw their sin and they saw the Savior. And by your grace, Lord, will you cause them to repent it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.